listening to the VC20 Podcast, a space for meaningful conversations and relevant teachings. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here. I have a mercifully short sermon for you all tonight. Um, So if you would go with me to Philippians chapter 3. Some of you are like, yeah, right. Challenge accepted. Let's see how short I can be. We've already ran over a bit uh, because worship was so amazing. Isn't God good? It's just, it's so amazing how faithful he is to meet us whenever we gather. You know, as we pour out our praises, he pours out his presence. Scripture is sure to remind us that when two or three or however many are in this room gathered together, that there God is in our midst. I love y'all so much, but I come here because God is here. Amen. Worship was so good. Thank you to Napsai and and Nick Croft for leading us. Brother Nick. Philippians chapter 3. If you guys would give me grace, I am feeling a little under the weather. No worries. It's not COVID. Just have a a bit of a sore throat tonight. Um, But God is good. So if at any point throughout this message you feel like gassing me up by shouting me down and giving me some hearty amens, I would so appreciate that, you all. Amen. Thank you, Ian. I think that was my brother Ian over there. I need it tonight, y'all. Philippians chapter 3. We're continuing our series through the book of Philippians called The Cruciformed Life. And tonight I want to talk to you about the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. In many ways, this is a simple message, but it is uh, essentially the message of my ministry. Jesus is the best thing about what we believe. And and it is a mind-blowing miracle that we get to be in intimate and personal and prayerful communion with our King Jesus. Amen. How many of you are grateful that God is not an abstraction, that God is a person and his name is Jesus and he longs to be with you. And when you speak, he speaks back. Isn't that good news? You know, so many other worldviews and religions say that, that you have to work your way up to God. But Christianity says that God loves you enough that, that he's coming to you. So Philippians chapter three is where we'll be. We're going to pick it up in verse four. Paul says this, though I myself have reason for such confidence, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless, holler at me. Verse seven. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray one more time and ask God to meet us through his word. Father, there are some in here who have been walking with you for a very long time. There are still others, Lord, who have newly encountered your love. Father, there are yet uh, still people who are on their journey toward you, Jesus. 
wherever we find ourselves tonight on our faith journey, I pray that you meet us precisely where we are. Come Spirit of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, how many of you have ever heard the, uh, the story of the missionary by the name of Jim Elliott? Wave at me. Okay, so we have a few folks who have heard of Jim Elliott. For those of you who have, I'm sure the rehearing of this story once again will not be a burden to you because the life of Jim Elliott is, is such an exemplary example of what it means to live fully for Jesus. So Jim Elliott was a missionary to Ecuador where in 1956, he and four friends attempted to reach the Harani Indians with the good news of Jesus. The Harani were commonly referred to as uh, the Akas, which was a pejorative name that literally meant the savage people. They were primitive and, and a notoriously dangerous tribe. They were an unreached people group. Unreached meaning that among them there was no witness to the reality and person of Jesus. They, uh, they resided deep in the jungles of Ecuador and they were so remote and, and had very little contact with the outside world. On January 6th, Jim Elliott and, and his fellow missionaries had what appeared to be a very hopeful encounter with the Harani Indians. They, they spent the afternoon among three Harani Indians, two women and a man. They showed them things like yo-yos and, and photographs and they even had the opportunity to take the, the man up onto the airplane. But just two days later, Elliot's body, along with his four missionary friends, were found upriver, having been speared to death by a group of 10 Harani warriors who revisited the camp. All five of these men were married. Four of them were fathers. One of the four fathers had another baby on the way. When that baby was born, her three-year-old sister was overheard saying to her while she was crying, never you mind, little one. When we get to heaven, I'll show you which one daddy is. Here are the words of Jim Elliott from his last journal entry that he penned most likely while he was waiting on the, the return of the Harani people. He said, oh, Jesus Master and center and end of all, how long before that glory is yours, which has so long awaited you. Now there is no thought of you among men, then there shall be thought of nothing else. No other men are praised, then none shall care for any other's merits. Hasten, hasten, glory of heaven, take your crown, subdue your kingdom, and enthrall your creatures. As you can tell, Jim Elliott was a very a romantic and poetic writer. He was probably best known for something that he wrote in his journal about uh, six years earlier, right before he graduated from college. He famously said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We see that same sentiment expressed in our text tonight that same singular desire for Jesus. Paul begins chapter three by warning the Philippians who were Jewish believers, or rather warning the Philippian Christians against the dogs. The dogs were Jewish believers who were trying to deceive these Gentile Christians that if you really wanted to be right with God, not only did you have to believe and follow after Jesus, but thereafter you had to become Jewish. You had to be circumcised. 
You had to uh, obey the, the dietary laws. They had to observe Jewish holidays and customs. They were, they were adding to what it meant to be a Christian. And, and for Paul, this literally inflames him. He becomes furious. He, he starts speaking of these Jewish Christians as dogs. This is very sharp and pointed language. I don't care what culture you're from, being, a, being called a dog is not a good thing. Paul says you can't add anything other... You can't add anything to the finished work of Jesus. You don't gain God by your good works, by what you do in the flesh. Paul says, watch out for these people. Three times in verse two, he says, beware, beware, beware. Paul is warning these Philippian believers to not fall prey, fall prey to the trap of adding anything to their salvation. These Jewish Christians were essentially Christian nationalists. Now, Christian nationalism, as we know it today, is born of the same, is fruit born of the same rotten tree. So Paul says, if you think that being Jewish makes y'all better, then I have all of you beat. He says, check my resume. And then he goes through this list of things, starting in verse five. Let's just tick through this together. He says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day, which is, which is his way of saying that I come from good stock, that my parents were Torah observing Jews. He says, uh, I was of the people of Israel. That means that he is a direct descendant from the, from the Israelite people of the tribe of Benjamin. This was a real flex here. Israel's first king was of the tribe of Benjamin, King Saul, who is in fact Paul's namesake. Before Paul encountered Jesus and took on the name of Paul, his name was Saul. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, which is his way of saying, I'm a pure blood. By this point, the vast majority of Jews were known as what's called a Hellenistic Jew, meaning they were Jew by, by ethnicity, but they were, they were influenced by the Greek culture of the day. They spoke Greek. Paul says, not me. I'm untainted. I still speak Hebrew. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. Pharisees were OCD when it comes to the law. They didn't think the law and the Torah was sufficient or good enough, and so they added to that law over 600 additional laws that they were committed to keeping. As for zeal, Paul says, I persecuted the church. Paul was a murderer of God's people fueled by a religious anger and elitism. He says, as for righteousness based on the law, I am faultless. I'm faultless. I am perfect. Now imagine, with all of that in mind, imagine Paul's life like a giant balance sheet. And on one side you have his gains, or, or what at one time was perceived by him to be his gains, that list of everything else. And on the other side you have his losses. And Paul says that I consider those things that were once my gains, everything that at one time I placed my identity and hope in, everything that mattered most to me, the thing that I spilt my life building and building upon, all of that stuff I've given my entire life to, those things that were at one time gains to me, I now count them as a loss. Listen to this, the name of this poem, y'all. Stanzas concerning an ecstasy experienced in high contemplation. St. John of the Cross makes the case that the path to truly knowing God is marked by a lot of unknowing along the way. Paul had a lot of unknowing to do. The things that at one time he thought were absolute certainties in a moment were exposed as the lies that they were upon experiencing and encountering the risen Jesus. So the question I want to posit to you tonight is, are you willing to do a bit of unknowing? 
If in the end, it means that you will know Jesus, truly know Jesus. God, I know that if I make it into this grad school, I'm going to be well on my way to a career that satisfies and a life of financial security. God, I know if I just get into this school, I'll be good. God, I know that this person is the one for me. God, I'm sure of it. We're going to be in wedded bliss for the rest of my life. Or perhaps it might take some unknowing of things with a, a, a little bit more theological depth. God, I know that all roads have to lead to you. Jesus can't really mean what he says when he says, I'm the only way, the only truth, and the only life. God, I know for some of you, it may mean unknowing your misconceptions about God, who he really is. Paul was building his ladder to heaven one rung of accomplishment at a time because he thought God was pleased with his good works. But the lie that he had to work to get his way up to God was shattered the moment that God descended low and met him on the Damascus road. Paul takes it up another notch in verse eight when he says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. You have to understand this. For Paul, this wasn't a theoretical statement or exercise. The man had literally lost everything. Paul had lost so much. Once upon a time, he was a man of great wealth and affluence. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was a council of the 70 most powerful men in all of Israel. He was a rising star in Israel, and he traded it all. He traded in all of that for a life of chains. Remember, he's writing this letter to the Philippian church from prison. He traded, he traded a life of wealth and, affl and affluence for a life of chains, a life of abject poverty, a, a life of constant persecution. And he says, I would do it all over again 10 times out of 10. He says, I consider everything a loss because I have known something immeasurably better. I have known something infinitely more satisfying. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Now, in order for this calculus to make sense to us, we must know what Paul means when he speaks of knowing Jesus. Paul isn't talking about an accumulation of facts about Jesus. He isn't talking about some stale mental ascension and acknowledgement of Jesus, which the heartbreaking reality is that this is what so many of us settle for. Paul is speaking of knowing Jesus personally and intimately, not as an abstraction, but as a person, not merely as a historical figure, but as our big brother and our very best friend. For Paul, this is the language of intimacy. That word knowing in the Greek is the word gnosko. It's, it was often used to refer to the intimacy that a man would have with his wife. This is the language that Paul uses when he speaks of knowing Jesus. He says, I want to know him intimately, personally. Back in 2007, I was emerging uh, from a, a faith crisis of sorts and the Lord was graciously reworking my understanding of who he was and, and, and reworking my understanding of what the gospel truly meant and what it was all about. And I remember sitting in a Lowe's parking lot and I had purchased the very first iPhone. And I was sitting in this parking lot alongside my, my dear friend, Brian Williams. 
He's the senior pastor of Hope City House of Prayer on the west side of Columbus. Some of you may have heard him preach at Breathe a couple of summers ago. And uh, I'm sitting in this Lowe's parking lot and on my iPhone, we on this interterrestrial, extraterrestrial, extrastellar, interstellar, this, this futuristic device, I can pull up YouTube. And so Brian has me watch this video, this very short sermon clip from a man by the name of Paul Washer. And Paul Washer meant so much to me back then, but... Uh, he, he's, he's, a, he's a slightly questionable now, but I, I mean, I, I have no fear in commending him to you. If you want to Google him, Google Paul Washer. Paul Washer in this, in this like seven minute sermon clip espouses John chapter 17, verse three. Verse that says this, says, this is eternal life that they may know you. The one true God and Jesus Christ, the son of whom you have sent. And, and I don't know how, how else to describe this other, other than to say in, a, in that moment, the Holy Spirit quickened that verse in my spirit. And, and all of a sudden, the rewards of the gospel made sense to me in that moment. That the gospel wasn't about me dying and getting to heaven one day and thereafter I get to meet Jesus. The gospel was about uh, God enabling me to know Jesus now, to know him personally, to know him intimately. That's what Paul is speaking of here. And to drive the point home just a bit further, Paul says, I consider all things garbage. That word in the Greek is the word skubalon. Can you say that? Say skubalon. Skubalon, which is the Greek expletive that's actually been sanitized for us here. It, it literally means waste or refuge. A better rendering of that word would have been dung. Paul says, I consider all these things that at one point I was certain were my gains. I consider them now a great big steaming pile of dung when I compare them to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Paul says, I consider all these things a loss that I might gain Christ, that I might gain him, that I might gain Jesus. The following phrase in verse nine, he says, and to be found in him, that's a phrase that Pastor Ellie is gonna talk about next week and she's gonna consider with us together the implications of our union with Christ. But I just wanna point out that for Paul, knowing Jesus means knowing the gospel. Notice he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from my own effort, my own resume, my own works, my own merit. He says, but I want a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus. That word righteousness means to be in right relationship with God, a relationship that can only be achieved, not based on what you do, but based on what Christ has done for you. You can't earn what is being afforded to you for free. You can't add anything to the finished work of Jesus. All that's left for you to do is to receive this righteousness by faith. Now you have to understand this. Faith is not synonymous with belief. Faith is not synonymous with belief. Belief is certainly a big part of faith, but faith instead is belief plus fidelity. Faith is belief plus faithfulness, perhaps. Belief plus loyalty. Faith is faithfulness. Faith is to continually cling to Jesus, to choose him over and over again, above everything else. Faith is to give myself to Jesus and in return receive his righteousness. I don't know if y'all remember this, but way back in, during the era of pre-COVID, we used to have dinner parties, right? People would invite you over to their house for dinner. And every good host, uh, they would never call you. I'm actually, upon re receiving an invitation to dinner, the right thing to do is, is to respond by saying, by asking the question, is there anything you need me to bring, right? Any good host will not respond to you, actually, yes. 
If you could bring a dessert, a good bottle of wine, a bouquet of flowers, the first, second, and third course. If you could bring all of those things, come on over. That's not how it works. Every good host provides everything you need. They set the table and all that's left for you to do is to come and feast. Jesus Christ invites us and he's done all the work himself. I'm closing. I told y'all this was going to be a short sermon. Paul says, I want to know him. Do you know him tonight? I'm not asking, do you know about him? I'm not asking him, did you hear of him once upon a time way back when in Sunday school? Do you know him? Do you know him as he is? Not if you, as you have believed him to be. This is why Paul goes on to say, I want to know him. In the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings, Paul says, if you want to know the real Jesus, then you need to come to know him on his terms. That means following after him, even into death. Do you know him? One final illustration as we close. If Napsai, if you want to jump back up here. St. Thomas Aquinas. He was a philosophical juggernaut and theologian in the 13th century whose writings have had an immense impact on the church and the academy. One day while he was uh, sitting in church considering and writing of the Eucharist, the communion, the bread and the wine, the body and the blood, the Eucharist is something that we celebrate every single Sunday here at VC20. While Aquinas was reflecting on the Eucharist, he heard a voice ask of him, and this voice uh, descended to him from the cross, from the crucifix that he was literally looking upon. And this voice asked of Aquinas, it says, Thomas, thou hast written well of me. Now what reward wilt thou have? Thomas, you've done so well. How can I bless you? Some might have thought Thomas in that moment to have said, God, I request immensely more knowledge and wisdom so that I continue, can continue to write and make a name for you and for myself. God, I request stability for my family. I've given it all for you, God, if you could just take care of my loved ones. Listen to Aquinas' response. His, his response, his reply was, non nisi te, Domini, non nisi te, which in English means nothing but you, Lord. Nothing but you. Does your spirit agree with Paul tonight when he says, Jesus, I consider everything a loss if it means that I might gain you. God, when I compare everything else that this war world affords me, everything else that at one time I thought were my gains, when I compare them to the surpassing worth of knowing you, I'm willing thereafter to lay all these things to the wayside. I want to know him. As Napsai begins to play, I want to invite you to, to pray with me. Spirit of God, we long to know you tonight. As we close, as we conclude our time together with these, these last few moments of worship we have, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Anything that we're clinging to, that is crowding out room for you in our hearts, Lord. Give us the courage to lay those down tonight. We want to know you, Jesus. That's the desire of our hearts. 
Forgive us, Father, for having contented ourselves to simply knowing about you. Forgive us, Father, for taking on a form of godliness but denying the power therein. Forgive us, Father, for settling over and over again for less than what you have. You've given us the best thing in the giving over of yourself. You've set the table for us, Father. But we can continue to fill ourselves with the proverbial fast food drive-throughs of life, Father. We want to forsake all that. We want to feast upon you tonight, Jesus. Would you reveal yourself as the only wise God, the only true King, our Lord, our Savior, our Master, our everything? We want to know you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the BC20 podcast. Make sure to subscribe for more sermons and intentional conversations. You can also check us out online at bc20.com.